This episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by Tops. Voyage across the Star Wars galaxies with Tops in an all-new trading card collection, Tops. Journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. Take a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi by visiting Tops.com to pick out your trading cards today. Or be sure to check out the Tops Card Trader app at Google Play Stores or any other app store. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films. The official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 226 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our both diverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herlewin, and with me like Vader on the trail of one young rebel pilot by the name of Skywalker, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan B. Butler! Hey! Hey, everybody! I think I was was good till like ten seconds ago, and then I think one of our cats just... It's like they, they, they drank a gallon of Tabasco sauce and then took a liquid dump on a space heater. <laughs> oh, I think I can make it. Oh, I hope I can make it. That just made me think, like, what what does it smell like inside Vader's suit? <laughs> oh, oh, at least now we know that sometimes he takes it off and sometimes he just has parts of him randomly, you know, knocked off that he has to replace or something. But, uh, yes, uh, speaking of Vader... Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Star Wars Darth Vader, Shadows and Secrets. That's Volume 2 of the Darth Vader series by Marvel. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. You know, this was a series I really wanted to like at first. I thought it was fairly well written for that first arc. I liked the way that the first arc was set up. And then you got to the end of the first arc, which was just called Vader, because that's not confusing or anything. Unlike having a new series called Darth Vader, Lord of the Sith, but never putting Lord of the Sith in the title on the actual comic so people get it confused with this series. Damn it, Marvel. I really wanted to get into it, and then that last bit of the first arc kind of had me going, wait, what? Because that was when they introduced Silo and these these weird technology-based, kind of trying to replicate the Force. Maybe they'll replace Vader as the Emperor's right-hand man sort of a, a trainee characters. And I was just kind of like, okay, I mean, I, I guess that can work. Sure, we'll see where it's going. And never would I have imagined that that was going to be the backbone of the entire Darth Vader series. Right? Because it is, though, 
that means that this arc is a little bit weird because it winds up being part heist tale, part subterfuge, subterfuge, I'm not quite sure what subterfuge is, but part subterfuge, maybe some subterfuge tossed in there with it. <laughs> but it's this sort of weird type of tale because it's trying to give us a tale that feels like it's cleverly written because of the different ways that the situation is being manipulated by different factors involved, particularly Vader. But at the same time, it's basically just connective tissue because they have to get the characters from here to there to get ready for the next arc, which is going to be Vader down, so that it can then go from there to ending the Vader series relatively soon thereafter. So it introduces an interesting new character, and in terms of the new Inspector character, he's kind of cool. And by the time the arc is over with, Vader's sort of moved on to the next phase of his plan, and we get to know a little bit more about how, what characters do know in this era regarding the end of the prequel era, which is cool and all. But it winds up because it's sort of based around just those quick little moments and making it all fit together to just connect to the next thing that has to happen really sort of left me cold. It's not a bad arc. It's just kind of there. I wouldn't say don't read it, but at the same time, I can't imagine recommending this to somebody unless they were wanting to get to Vader down or wanting to just read all the Marvel stuff and work their way forward. For fans of Afra, it's pretty solid. For fans of Vader... It's also pretty solid, but for Star Wars fans who want a story that really feels like it's really giving you something more than what's on the page or something that, that you can really dig into, I don't feel like there was enough here with this one to justify six issues. I know we're only going to look at the first three issues this time and the next three issues, the last three issues next time, but I don't know. I just kind of felt like it sort of left me cold. And the other thing that I would say, just from a non-spoiler standpoint, because there's no way to spoil it with talking about art, is uh, I tend to like Salvador LaRocca's work a lot of times on this series, but this was the era in which he just could not, for the life of him, decide what Afra was supposed to look like. <laughs> Afra never looks the same from panel to panel. She's been introduced as, oh, she's a character who's kind of Asian in appearance. No, 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 she's... Typical white girl in appearance. No, no, no. She at one point has a face on her that makes her look like uh, the offspring of Apocalypse from the X-Men comics. <laughs> he could not figure out what she was supposed to look like. I mean, for God's sake, you know, use a photo reference of somebody or something. <laughs> because most of the artwork in this series I actually like. There's some weird shaped Stormtrooper helmets at points, but I tend to like the artwork in this series. But for God's sake, pick an Afra and stick with it. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's here, and I'm glad that we're covering it, because it means that once we cover this and we cover the next uh, Star Wars ongoing series arc that we haven't touched yet, we'll be ready to actually talk about Vader down and continue working our way through the Marvel comics that we've kind of neglected in favor of miniseries for a while. But I just kind of feel like this one's just sort of there. You know, and I'm kind of in the same boat, like, I wanted to say it was kind of hit or miss, but it really it felt like it was hitting more often than missing, Cold is definitely a good way to put it because as I'm going through this, I'm like, I'm like, I felt like this was definitely an Afro story. Like, like this is definitely the, the standout character of all of the Vader series right now. So far is Afra. I'm really getting a kick out of her. And when I, when I think about it like that, like if this is an Afra story, it's, it's delivering. I mean, you know, she's got this weird quasi relationship with Vader where, you know, she idolizes him and is also terrified of him. And. And Thanos, or whatever the heck, however you say the uh, adjunct, is that how you say the inspector's name? Uh, 
he is, man, I don't know. There's something about this guy. Like he's got this Thrawn like quality about him. And yet he'll be going along and he'll be raising the game and he'll be putting clues together in a Thrawn like way. And then, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to follow that. Like, wait, what? What the hell? You've got him against the wall. What the? So it was like, and I guess those are those moments, like you were saying, where it's pushing the story forward that, that sometimes that's where it really felt like it was missing because the pressure was building. I, at first I was questioning like, dude, is Vader about to be caught out in this? Is this all Vader's plan? Like, and, you know, and then we start getting little bits of it here and there as it goes. And I almost wonder if, if that's part of just the nature of how they're trying to tell the story. And, and, you know, when we're reading it issue to issue and then getting the trades and then getting to the next one, like if we come back later and we read this as a, as a full series, you know, it's all complete and we read from one end to the other, will it really pay off? Because right now I'm questioning all these things like, you know, oh, is Vader going to do this or does Vader know? And then I get two more pages later and oh, okay, there's the answer to that. But not everything is answered. Some things are saving for later. And so you feel like there's really no payoff for a lot of the moments, but it felt like the intensity was there. Like there was a lot of moments for Vader and Afro, especially where I was just like, oh my God. Like, I mean, there are times where I feel like Afro and her whole crew are basically Mary and Gary Stews. Like they're just too cool for school. And while on one hand, I really enjoy that. There are times where I'm kind of like, it, it almost almost takes me out of it at times where I start to stop and wonder if other people would have an issue with that. Cause I have heard per- people, they don't like the fact that there's an evil three PO and an evil R2 basically, but I kind of dig it. Like, so for me, it's more the interesting ride of finding out where this is going to put Afra and Vader. I mean, you know, we left the last arc of this and Vader was in this spot where, you know, he's building up this army and all this stuff. But at the same time, Vader's in this very unique position because at the end of Rogue One, we see badass Vader, right? The end of episode four, what do we get? Vader gets slapped on the hand and everybody in the Empire knows that the Death Star getting blown up by that rebel pilot. That's Vader's screw up. So now Vader is like across the board, not in a secure position. And that's an interesting place for Vader to be. But it's hard for me to reconcile the fact that this Vader is so late in the timeline because like Vader not quite fitting in with the the structure of the hierarchy. That's something I would expect closer to Revenge of the Sith, not closer to right after A New Hope. And yet that's exactly what we have. We have Vader basically on the outs and it puts us in that unique position. It's like he's he's now got money. He's got a droid factory. He's got all these things he's building up. But for what purpose? You know, it's you almost get the sense like, hey, he's really he's really meaning it when he says, Luke, join me and together we'll rule the galaxy. Like, is he doing that now? Like. I'm only assuming as such because, again, we haven't pushed the story out that far that I know. But, yeah, there's a lot of little things like that that, that had me stopping and, and enjoying. Uh, I really – I dug the little Indiana Jones flavor here and there that they tie into things. I like the whole – you know, we're doing a, we're doing a bank robbery heist kind of thing, but even in the heist, we're doing an Italian job and, and ripping off our own people kind of thing. Like that was kind of fun. But yeah, I mean, I go back and forth and cold is definitely a good way to put it because it's like when you have a really good meal and you let it sit too long. And when you get to it, you're like, Oh man, it's cold. Like, yeah, it's, it's good, but it's not as good as it could be. And I felt like that was, that was how it was. Like, we have these moments, especially with that inspector, like, man, he's just so on it. And then all of a sudden he just flips the switch where he's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. If if we just if we pursue them, then, yeah, we're not going to get what we need to do. So like, you're right. Let's go do that. And then when Vader's getting his butt chewed out, then Don, that guy goes like, no, it was my like he's saving Vader's butt. I'm like, that, those type of things really made me stop and question what was going on with that character. It was like 
did they already know they were bringing in Thrawn and they were like, wait, this guy's too close to Thrawn. We got to back him off a bit because that seems like one hell of a character flaw for a guy that's that smart. <laughs> uh, see, we'll get into this when we talk about the in the, the spoiler section, but uh, a lot of that I'm pretty sure was feigned. He was faking it because uh-huh. of what we learn in later stories, but you would only know it because of two panels in, in one of the issues. Interesting. Uh, we'll talk about it when we get there, but things that stand out to me also uh, from a non-spoiler standpoint, I do think it's interesting that here, you know, it, there's a contrast now. We now have the new Darth Vader, Lord of the Sith, or whatever they're calling it, series, where we're seeing him right after Revenge of the Sith, and here we're seeing him right after A New Hope. And in one case, it's sort of a, you mu- you have already kind of proven yourself, now prove yourself some more, you're a badass, train my Inquisitors. Whereas here, it's basically like, you know, one more word out of you, and I'm sticking you in detention with Emilio Estevez and, uh, you know, Ali Sheedy <laughs> and such, and you're going to be hearing, you know, don't you forget about me, like playing in the background and crap, so don't mess with me, boy. <laughs> so it's it's a very different way of looking at Vader, but I think that what got me, you made an interesting comment about looking at this in the whole context, and I think that I am able to appreciate this more now a little bit because I know where it's going. So some of the things that Thanoth, I think that's how you pronounce his name, does make more sense to me in the grand scheme of things. But this story left me so cold when reading it as individual issues. I barely remembered what happened in the first issue of it when I read the second, or the first and second when I read the third. By the time I got to the sixth issue, I was just waiting for it to be done because I barely remembered anything from the previous five. It just never grabbed me. And I think that's why I felt kind of the same. Wait a second, what's going on with this character on my first read? Because, one, we didn't know where it was going. But two, because really the key of a lot of what happens in the last issue or two comes down to a couple of panels at the end of a previous issue. And the panels, as I recall, don't even have much in the way of dialogue. So it's sort of a you must notice this to make sense of what comes later. And dude, I mean, it's been it's been a couple of months since that issue and you haven't grabbed me at all. I'm not going to remember that. Um, reading it in one sitting, though, as we, I did to reread it before we record here, I'm able to get more of an appreciation of it. Uh, less as a story in and of itself and more as um, another way to put it might be it's a puzzle piece, right? I mean, it's it's not the big picture, but it's a it's a decent little puzzle piece that plugs in and helps us get the bigger picture later. They can really only be judged, perhaps, in the full context of the series. But I guess that's stuff that we're going to have to delve into Spoiler territory for. Mm-hmm. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. As we like to say, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. Shadows and secrets. Disorder engulfs the galaxy. After the destruction of the Death Star by the mysterious Force-strong rebel pilot, the Sith Lord Darth Vader was deemed responsible by his master, Emperor Palpatine. Now pursuing his own agenda, the pilot's identity, Vader recruited bounty hunter Boba Fett and archaeologist Dr. Aphra. Pitted by the Emperor against a new array of rivals for his position in the Empire, Vader's rage at being doubted was compounded by an even more shocking revelation. The rebel pilot he sought was actually 
the son he never knew he'd had. Now, alongside Aphra, the Sith Lord returns to his home planet of Tatooine, to the former homestead of the pilot, following a trail left behind by Boba Fett and the young Skywalker. Yeah, so we start out uh, Darth Vader number seven, which is Shadows and Secrets Part One, which brings us to Tatooine. So I'm assuming the issue's subtitle is I Hate Sand. Uh, or We Hate Sand because, you know, there's more than one person there. So we start off on Tatooine. And Vader has followed the clues provided by Boba Fett back in the previous arc. Boba Fett had fought briefly with Luke Skywalker at the old, old Ben's hut. But, of course, the Lars Moisture Farm is also in the general vicinity. So to investigate what appears to be evidence that his son is the rebel pilot and did survive Padme's death, Vader travels to Tatooine, a place where he said he would not have wanted to return. He brings along Aphra and Triple Zero and BT-1. And first, they check out the Lars Moisture Farm. It looks familiar, of course. They see the remnants of the stormtroopers coming in and killing uh, Baru and Owen and all. Kind of funny, Triple Zero is saying, those poor droids, because he doesn't care about the humans and everything. But Vader's like, okay, that's it. Let's go. There's nothing to see here. So they go to what is now basically just the abandoned former home of Ben Kenobi, and Vader is able to sense the echoes, so to speak, of the clash between uh, Luke and Boba Fett. Somewhat sensing, it seems, but also he's able to see things like lightsaber scorches on the walls and get at least a little bit of a picture of what happened and the idea that Luke does have the Force, but he hasn't really had much in the way of training. Otherwise, the battle wouldn't have played out the way that he's deducing that it played out. But again, he makes the argument, well, there's nothing here. I'm done. We're going to get out of here. So Afra, much to the delight of the two droids, is able to set a bomb that destroys Ben's old hut. Uh, it's a molecular purge, so all forensic evidence is gone. The building itself is actually technically still there, but any traces of Obi-Wan, any traces of Luke, all gone. And Vader tells Afra that he's going to return to his duties, but he'll have a task that's very delicate for her to deal with for him very soon. We then jump to San Tull, not to be confused with Shu Torin, as I was doing constantly while reading this series, because that's another planet we'll run into later. On San Tull in the Outer Rim, we see the Rodian leader of the San Tull Pride dealing with uh, one of his flunkies, who basically uh, ran into an issue with an Imperial crackdown and wasn't able to complete a job for his boss. And anybody else who's done that has had their heads cut off. He even shows him the collection of heads and... This flunky thinks he's going to be the next one to be killed, only for it to be revealed that, nope, he's got an Imperial tracker on him, and in comes Vader with a bunch of stormtroopers to basically wipe out the Santul Pride, or the vast majority of them. In the process, Vader basically robs them blind, because they have this massive vault with tons and tons and tons of credits, contraband, and so forth, and it turns out, as he meets with Sutha the Hut, that this was basically all organized as part of a deal with the Huts. The Huts are going to get control of this territory from a criminal empire standpoint, and they'll be providing supplies and needs for the empire. But the cash that's been stolen, that is all going with Vader. Um, he's basically just ripped off these criminals, but he's not going to just take it straight to the empire. He has his own plans for what to do with this cash. 
So we jump to elsewhere on Suntul, and we see IG-90, which is a red version, basically, of IG-88, who is, of course, a bounty hunter, uh, entering into a meeting with Bosk and a little sort of, almost like a midget Mandalorian, called B-Box. Yeah, we never see what kind of alien's in there, right? Like, that that could be, uh, uh well, what the hell? Like an Ugnod or something? I'm not really sure. What was Griff? Uh, Hieroglyph is what I was thinking. What the heck a Snivian? The gorilla. Yeah, the Snivians. And we actually get some early hints here as to Black Kersantan's origins a little bit because they're there to meet and they're going to meet with Afra and Black Kersantan, the black furred Wookiee who we've seen back in, uh, I guess around this time we had seen him sort of hinted at in some places, but he's going to play a major role within Afra plus this series plus he's going to show up. Uh, in the main Star Wars series. But we get a little bit of a hint of his background where he has decided to kill some time by jumping into an arena fight, about the only time he's actually volunteered for such a fight, whereas most people don't want to be in the fights. He's like, yeah, jumps in, and sort of reliving old times. So we know that at some point he was some type of gladiatorial fighter. And finally, they meet with the person they came to meet, which is... Afra and Afra basically says, "Hey guys, how's about we pull off a heist that could make you rich?" Turns out that the money that was taken from the Santul Pride is being carried on an imperial transport to go to an imperial vault. And she has information, of course, provided by Vader, but at this point in reading the comic you'd be like, "I wonder if you got she got that from Vader or if she's double crossing Vader and has a death wish." Right? But she knows where the ship's going to be, and she has a plan for stealing those credits. So the issue ends with her simply asking her confederates, who wants to be rich? Yeah, I kept wondering immediately, was this her betraying him? I mean, I was like, oh my god, does Vader know about this? Like, there were a lot of cool things. Like, I like how the beginning of the issue on Tatooine... Vader's brooding, like all the scenes of Vader, he's like kind of standing there looking off in the distance, you know, thinking real hard on the manipulations that have put him where he is. Like that was something that really, you know, when you stop and think about the character, you know, Anakin Skywalker, who was betrayed by a Sith Lord to turn his back on all his Jedi and, you know, through his anger and hatred, murdered the woman he loved, lost his child. And now he finds out that he didn't lose his child because his wife was able to deliver the child, which... She hadn't done when he met him. So, I mean, all the thoughts that have to have Anakin's mind just racing. And for the fact that at this point, it's Vader. Anakin has been on the back burner. You know, Vader's like, I've destroyed him. He's gone. And now Anakin's back and Anakin's got all these thoughts going. And that's definitely something that I found very interesting. Um, you had mentioned the fact that Vader was, was chiding Obi-Wan and there was a great line about it where he's like, you had 20 years. Obi-Wan, hiding the boy in one place I would never return was cunning, but in this, you are a failure. And, you know, there is that aspect that I, I, I agree. Like, and I almost question, like, is it really Obi-Wan's failure or is this the failure of George Lucas's storytelling process? Because of the convoluted way he told this tale, we had to have it where Obi-Wan sat on this planet and watched over Luke, but never bothered to train him. And that just, that still to this day just doesn't quite work for me in the realm of storytelling like why what why waste all that time when this kid's your only hope like that that never really fit well but i did also i like the fact that when vader he's talking to suth of the hut like do you get the the sense that like vader is working with the huts because he's ordered to by palpatine and if so 
is that a punishment? Because you know Anakin doesn't really care for huts that much. Or is this one of those angles of like, well, you used to be a former slave and you used to deal with the huts, so we're just going to give it to you. Or is this just a double-handed Sith dealing right there? You know, I got to say that you bring up a good point there about just the weirdness of the Obi-Wan thing. We've talked about this before. But yeah, it just seems like that's just not a great plan. I mean, I know he hates sand and he's got so many bad memories. He wouldn't want to go back there. And that's actually emphasized in the Clone Wars film about how Anakin hadn't intended to go back to Tatooine and all. But I'm kind of sitting back being like, you know, guys, I'm thinking about this. And wouldn't Anakin have maybe wanted to go back and kill Owen and Beru just to cover up any traces of people who once knew him? So to some degree, isn't that putting a big target on Luke's forehead? But no, apparently not. Uh, I also like the fact that to some degree, uh, some of the irony that fans have talked about in the past comes out through Afra, where she points out, she says, you know, I guess it's an irony. If the boy was here when the jackboot came down, that is when Owen and Beru were killed, the Empire would still have a Death Star. But if the family wasn't killed, maybe he'd never have left. Revenge is one hell of a motivator. In other words, basically, by the Imperials hunting down the plans and killing, you know, Baru and Owen, to some degree, they set things in motion that was going to end the Death Star, and that was on Vader's watch. Now, granted, would Luke maybe have decided to leave? Possibly. But remember, of course, in the film, it's, you know, there's nothing for me here now. I want to go with you to Alderaan. And and it's kind of one of those, sweet, they're dead, I'm out of here, clowns, kind of moments. And it's, you know, it's amusing to mock. But it is kind of true, right? That if they had been still alive, it's possible the Death Star would still be out there. And no, so Vader's already sort of feeling it like, wow, it was my kid that blew up the Death Star and screwed me over. And now it's... And it was kind of my fault in that regard. Dang it. Well, the other thing that made me stop and think about, too, is, you know, in Legends, we had the whole backstory with Kenobi going off and doing his thing. We had Vader going and trying to track him down and Palpatine basically saying, don't worry about the Jedi. They're not a a threat. Now, Lords of the Sith, Vader is also obsessed with Obi-Wan. And again, Palpatine's like, it's no big deal. But it makes me wonder, like, you know, why didn't they worry about Obi-Wan? Like, there's no, oh, hey, by the way, he died. Like, there's no falsified death or fake death or anything like that. Like, they know legitimately he's out there somewhere, and there's no concern. That That's always been one of those things that just, it's those Lucasisms where you can't really get around it because that's the nature of the way the story evolved. But, man, if that makes it really kind of hard to process sometimes. Maybe they could, like, swap it out for some other dire consequence of Revenge of the Sith, like, uh, like Obi-Wan, for the rest of his days, refused to eat barbecue because he couldn't stand the smell anymore, or something like that, you know? <laughs> some kind of canonical psychological problem oh, that he has God, because of it. That's great. <laughs> I can't eat Nerf anymore because all I think of is Anakin. Oh! He used to order his chicken extra tasty crispy, now he just wants mashed potatoes. <laughs> The other thing that's interesting, too, is the whole general, uh, the grand general tag now. I mean, why grand? Why not just make him a grand moff? I mean, what's the what does being a grand general do for you that being a grand moff doesn't do or vice versa? Like that was was definitely weird. See, I can answer that. And we haven't really seen him. We're going to see him in the next issue. But remember that moff is a political title, right? Moff is a political governmental position. 
whereas admiral or general is going to be your military position within either the army or the navy. So the grand seems like it's just sort of saying, like, you're a top tier of whatever that is. So if a moth is a governor, you're like a super governor over a bigger territory. If you're a general or an admiral, now you're a grand admiral. You can give the regular admirals and generals orders and so on. So he's just a military guy. He's an army guy. Uh, who we get to see a little bit more of thanks to from a certain point of view. True. I, the last thing I, you mentioned, IG-90, I did like the fact that they had the whole rhetoric of we don't serve their kind here. And, and he had his own, like, giving you a reason why they don't serve his kind. Like, okay, kudos. And that brings us into book two, part two of Shadows and Secrets, or another way to put it, of course, being Darth Vader number eight. So we pick up at Anthan Prime. Most of this is happening within the Anthan system here. And at Anthan Prime, we see the Imperial ship that's carrying the Santul Pride's credits, or confiscated credits, to the Imperial Vault. We'll find that it is predominantly guarded by droids because they don't even trust their own stormtroopers and other humans who are supposedly loyal to the Empire around the credits because it's too much of a temptation. There's too much of a fortune there. So they arrive via the Archangel, and there's a great moment initially when... Aphra says, you know, right, here they come. When they enter the asteroid belt, we move. But there's no asteroid belt around. It's just one asteroid. And she just kind of pauses like, come on, someone say it. And Triple Zero chimes in, very well, Mistress Aphra. What asteroid belt? And kaboom. Uh, they blow up that one asteroid that they've been moving into the right position. Essentially create their own asteroid belt. And the ship winds up, it's an Arquitans-class ship that we see in Rebels all the time, gets hammered away by this stuff or buy this stuff, and in comes the Archangel with the idea being that now they can slip in, and any malfunctions that happen, any uh, strange venting of atmosphere or anything, well, that's just part of being in that asteroid field and being hit by asteroids. Surely it has nothing to do with actually being boarded. And the team uh, goes inside the ship, disables the security that's inside. Uh, again, we get on... Uh, it's hard for me to count the pages here because I'm reading it off of the iPad, but the first of the pages where they're inside and the background is kind of orange, um, about two panels from the bottom of the five panels on that page, we get another instance of, hey, look, that's another person playing Afra, because she looks nothing like Afra any other time in the entire series. Just just take for granted that there's inconsistent afra -dom. Their plan, basically, is that they are going to get into the vault, get to the cache, while Black Kersantan is out there in a different ship, a Wookiee, I think it's called an Ozatuk fighter, because I think we just got this same type of fighter for the X-Wing miniatures game. And BT-1 is getting up on top of the ship, so there's this big rend in the hull, and they just basically release all the cache, or much of the cache, out into space, supposedly to be lost. And it turns out that, you know, some of it is salvaged, so she's able to pay her confederates, but they're not all too happy about the fact that a lot of the money supposedly is gone. Black Kersantin is even growling at her, and so forth. Now, they finally part ways. She does point out, you know, that she would never dare double-cross them, right? That's just bad for business, and so forth. And... We then move to shortly thereafter on Anthen 13, which is one of the moons of Anthen Prime, and there they are with a huge pile of riches, all the other cash that was supposedly lost, because it turns out that once it was released, BT was able to sort of funnel it 
into one specific space, seemed like a like a force fieldy kind of thing, which then allowed Black Crescentin to come in and basically use a device that's more or less sort of a uh, almost like a vacuum cleaner or a huge magnet and just suck it all in and bring it down. So Black Crescentin knew all the time he was just acting like he was angry what was happening with the rest of this cash. So the others have gotten paid. But the huge payday is for Afra, Black Kersantan, the two droids, and of course Vader, because he's the one who put this all into motion. He does appear behind her, and it becomes clear that no, this was not something she did against him. This was all part of his machinations. Uh, and this is, to get him involved in the job, this is where Afra does promise Black Kersantan to help find the people responsible for cutting him up, basically mutilating him in certain ways, augmenting him for the fights that we saw hinted at back in the previous issue. That's not a story that'll really come to fruition until the Dr. Afro comic series launches and gets its first annual. But it is coming, eventually. And this means that now they've got that droid factory they got from Geonosis. They've got bounty hunters who trust them and will work for them, or at least trust Afra and will work for her. Tons of money to pay for bounty hunters and anything else. They're basically in a good position to run their own operations outside of the Empire. And it now is when Afra gets the job. Uh, he needs information confirmed. And finding that confirmation is is difficult, so he sends Afra to go find confirmation of the identity of the kid who destroyed the Death Star. She's given a month. He says, contact me only when you have succeeded. If you don't contact me within a month, I will contact you. That is not something you would enjoy. So Afra's got a month to pin down that information there. Uh, we find that the droids are also going to be along for this mission, but they don't actually get a share of the winnings of the take from this. Triple Zero expresses his regret. Uh, when Mr. IG-90 received a share, I can't help but take my continuing poverty somewhat personally. You take your joy in your work, Afra answers. I was not locked in a room with a humanoid and a sharp implement, Mr. Afra. There was little joy... Patience, Triple Zero. In this outfit, it can only be a matter of time. Still the gallows humor going on between the droids and her. Uh, we then see a whole other aspect introduced into the story during a briefing by Grand General Tag. Because he's showing us activities on Maigito, on Santol, which was actually Vader, and on Anthan-14, which are all supposedly the work of attacks by a group called the Plasma Devils. We're not really given a whole lot of information about who the Plasma Devils are at this point. We know they're deep within the system, and they need to crush them before they can move on, before the Empire can move on beyond the system, but otherwise we don't know much about them. They're basically a rebel cell, but it's not really described here at all to give you that sense. So it sounds like it's just a you know a typical criminal organization. You really got to remember this name when it comes up in a later issue, or the connection won't make a whole lot of sense. But aboard the Star Destroyer with Tag are some of those pretenders to the throne, are some of those possible replacements. Uh, General Carbon, the Moncala with the augmentation. The Grievous Moncala. Yeah, the Grievous Moncala. You've got the twins, Aeolin and Morit. And you've also got, uh, what's her name? Void Gazer, I believe was her name. Um, the woman who has the ability to control the little drones floating around her, who's supposed to be some kind of super genius. And they all have their own jobs. Basically, the, uh, job of Carbon, the job of the Moncala, is he's the one who's supposed to figure out who the pilot was who took down the Death Star. Okay? 
then it's the job of the twins to actually go after the plasma devils. Now, the thing here, though, is that Vader and Tulan Voidgazer, right, super genius, they're actually not allowed to be part of going after Luke or whoever the pilot is that destroyed the Death Star because to Tag's mind, they are too personally invested. Vader because it was his failure and Voidgazer because so many other like-minded scientists died aboard the Death Star. So she feels it as a personal loss. So she's going to have to do certain research things for him and Vader is going to be sent on a propaganda mission. Basically, his job is pretty much to investigate his own heist. Uh, Tag wants him to investigate how the Santul Pride's fortune that was recovered by the Empire was stolen in transit to Anthan Prime. Which is interesting because Vader's like, I thought it was lost. Right? They tried to make it look as though it was an accident, right? The whole asteroid field thing. But no. The Empire, Tag, does not believe this was an accident and wants it investigated because this type of thing, even if it's just a money thing, needs the Emperor's justice because, of course, the Empire can't be seen to be taken advantage of like that. And in order to help Vader, we're introduced to his new adjutant, which is Inspector Thanoff. Inspector Thanoff being this seemingly mild-mannered, uh, older guy. He's got a monocle. He's got a cane. Doesn't really seem all that imposing, but we will find he is a brilliant mind as far as this goes. And we get the first hints that he's already a little more thrawn as he's already kind of got a sense of what's going on because they're talking about the culprits who did the theft. He says, we have a start, at least. The culprits likely use the moons. It's an area you're already familiar with, he says, talking to Vader, and recently. That knowledge will likely prove useful. There's like, knowledge? From your trip to Anthan 13 yesterday. And Vader just stops dead in the hallway. I believe the slight ionization of surface dust on your armor is characteristic of that particular moon. Within 24 hours, it would have been lost, but for a day or so, it's quite distinctive. Vader is now going to have to basically have to cover his own tracks, because this guy is way more perceptive than anyone would have imagined. In fact, his own description of itself is, Lord Vader, I'm not a sycophant, traitor, or worst of all, an incompetent like Unai, his previous adjutant. I am a professional investigator. And this, a simple case. Larceny is the least of the great crimes. Mark my words, we will have tidied this away within days. And we end the issue with Vader, again, having to investigate himself with a brilliant mind at his side, which can't be good for Vader, saying, We shall see, Thanoth. We shall see. Dun, dun, dun. Now, what's interesting is, like, so you fixated when it comes to the art on Aphra, and for me it was the Archangel. Uh, when we see the scene where she's like, when they enter the asteroid belt, we move. There's like a point on the front of that ship that's pointing to basically to the right. When you see it later, it's to the left. Then again, it's not there. It's like, does, is there a point on this thing that moves around like its own nose? Because man, that ship is changing all the damn time. Like, I don't understand what the hell the ship looks like. It's a cool ship, but I, I I'm just, I'm lost. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those ships that it takes a while for it to really get definition. It seems like to actually kind of look like one thing and have it consistently look like that one thing, which is weird because most of the other ships and characters that are introduced within this series are pretty much consistent from the jump. You know, you don't see those types of weird inconsistencies, for instance, with the 
you know, pretenders to the throne characters like the twins and, and the Moncala and such. It's Afra and her ship. What have you got against your own character you just created, man? <laughs> Did you see her movie, Dr. Afra and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? <laughs> well, and, and I love, I love the way, so this was probably one of my favorite issues so far because I like the, the way it started to play up and stuff, the, the scheme, the way that she went about it all. I really, I got a kick out of that. Like that was working. Uh, one of the things that I found was interesting is once they got the coins into the hold and she points out, you know, yeah, we lost a lot. If you look on the background of the walls, there are schematics for triple zero and the B droid. And I thought that was kind of cool because that's like, you know, that's an aphronism. Because, uh, 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 you know, it gives you an idea of what she does. Like she works on droids and stuff to the point that she would actually have their blueprints just on the wall randomly. I was like, oh, OK, I'm down with that. Yeah, I, I like the way it plays out, but again, this is one of those ones that I only appreciate in retrospect, because by the time I was reading this, I was like, yeah, I guess he did take the fortune from that criminal gang, didn't he? I can't hardly remember what happened in the last issue, you know what I mean? If it wasn't for the fact that it was mentioned in the opening crawl, I probably would not have had any idea why we should care about this fortune. I like the fact, though, that in the grand scheme of things, as a series, rather than just as an arc... It's the next step in building up Vader's power, right? We are going from basically uh, him being basically at the mercy of whatever resources he can use from the Empire to now, thanks to the first arc, he's got the droids. Now, thanks to this arc, he's got that fortune there, assuming he's able to keep it. And it's pretty cool. And I'm not sure that I ever would have thought of Vader as being someone who is particularly manipulative, right? Because the Sith are meant to be manipulative. They're meant to be much more Thrawn-esque than Darth Maul-esque in a lot of ways, right? More the thinkers, the tacticians, the the machinations behind the scenes. Yeah, telling truth and lies. Right. And instead, usually Vader is sort of the blunt instrument, almost like Maul was, and that he usually doesn't have these deeper undertones of scheming. And yet here he's scheming full force and it works very well. You could almost see this as, I mean, what, what this reminded me of a lot was Goldeneye, right? Because what is the plot of James Bond Gold? That's the very first Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie for those who aren't familiar with it. But basically the idea, spoilers ahead here, um, but it's an old movie, so freaking watch it. But it's the idea that James Bond is trying to defeat a villain who's trying to uh, sort of reset the world's, you know, credit histories and banking histories and all this stuff so he can steal a bunch of money and using a technology he's got his hands on to do it. But the villain is Alec Trevelyan, who was 006. So it's basically another 00 agent who was a close friend of James Bond, who was essentially left for dead when thought he had been killed. So you have this instance of sort of, it's someone who knows the inner workings of a situation and an organization so well, their own government so well, that in theory they should be able to pull whatever kind of heist they want to and hide it. Only there's someone who knows it even better and perhaps has some insight into the situation that will cause them to be able to get too close for comfort to the person doing the theft. I thought that was a really kind of cool way of doing this because it's not the type of story you would usually expect to see with Vader. And it's cool to see. Now, I would not have thought of, again, I didn't think of Thanoth when reading this the first time as a particularly formidable opponent for Vader, simply because, again, issue to issue, I barely remembered what the hell was happening. It was just that cold of a reaction from me reading it through all at once 
and knowing what comes in later arcs, we're already seeing foundations laid for how good of an observer he is, so that by the time we get what eventually will happen within the series, and we get what happens in, I guess it'll be the issues that we cover next episode, we get an instance that happens there, and then his demeanor seems to change, and his way of dealing with Vader seems to slightly change. Um, it'll all make sense in the grand scheme of things, that wow, this is a guy who, he is so much Vader's opposite. Vader is physical prowess, brute force power, uh, strength of presence. And here's a guy who walks with a cane. He's got a goofy little mustachey beardy thing. I'm not even sure what you call that. That's that's a mustache that goes all the way up into your sideburns. What do they call that? The sideburn stash? Yeah, yeah, but doesn't have the chin or anything, which is yeah. Um, like he should, like he he's, he could double as a dwarf if he was shorter from the Hobbit movies I just finished watching. But but if you were to pick an actor to play this guy, who leapt to your mind? Because I had somebody specific that this guy reminded me of. Uh, the person who jumped to my mind, and probably because he just passed away, was Robert Goulain, who played Benson. See, for me, I kept I kept seeing one of the many faces of Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, that's true. From from Pulp Fiction, right? Yeah. That, as soon as you said that, I'm like, that's him. Yeah, Look at yeah, that. Yes, yes. But yeah, this is a, he's a total opposite of Vader, and yet he is formidable because his knowledge, his keen eye for detail, and what he could expose against Vader makes him the kind of threat that someone like just a rebel with a rocket launcher never will be. In essence, and and to some degree, I think this will be something we can talk about a little bit more when we talk about Vader down, but the whole premise of Vader down is, oh, Vader has been shot down. Vader's going to be captured by the Alliance because they're sending all their troops at him. Oh, brute force battle. Well, really, that's not much of a threat to Vader. But this guy is... And that is a fascinating way to address the idea of trying to give us a foil for Vader, who is such a powerful being that the only obvious answer is an escalating sort of a, uh, not a war of attrition, a, uh, uh, an arms race, basically, between we're going to have this powerful rebel. Okay, now Vader has to be even more powerful. Now it's even more powerful rebel. Now an even more powerful Vader, which would just get out of hand very quickly. You know, his power is doubling every issue. <laughs> but... Uh, Instead, Thanoth is a very quiet, very self-confident, very inquisitive, very dangerous dude. Yeah, that first interaction with Vader alone, that that's where I was like, oh, God, this guy's on it. Like, oh, like he's already on you, Vader. That was kind of how I came right out the get go. It's like, oh, this can't this can't end well. But speaking of things that do end well, we got a, a quick word from our sponsor. Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by the fine folks at Tops. Take a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi or check out Tops' new Masterwork collection by visiting Tops.com to pick up an incredible selection of Star Wars trading cards today. That's right, Tops' Masterwork set is back. The high-end collector card set you know and love is returned with new characters and new hits. The set features 100 premium base cards, new short prints to chase wood, foil, and metal insert cards, as well as new autograph signers and new relic cards. There is one hit card per mini box, four mini boxes per master box, and two autographs per master box, also guaranteed. And voyage across the Star Wars galaxy with Tops in an all-new trading card collection, Tops, Journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. 
The 110 base storyline cards take you on a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi. Collect stickers, character cards, illustrated cards, as well as sketch cards, hand-drawn renderings of Star Wars characters from across the saga, and plastic emblem cards featuring heroes and villains from Star Wars The Last Jedi and more. Autographs from over 50 actors and characters with special focus on The Last Jedi, and look for rare dual and triple autographs plus the ultra-rare six-person autograph featuring actors from Star Wars The Force Awakens. Cards feature the iconic 1977 blue Starfield design, so be sure to pick up your trading cards and take the journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi by visiting tops.com today. And if you're into the digital side of collecting, be sure to check out Topps' Star Wars Card Trader app. Collect and trade over 1,000 officially licensed Star Wars digital cards. This also includes replicas of the original Star Wars 1977 set by Topps. There are daily deals, all new trading cards, exciting digital twists, and so much more. Take your entire Star Wars collection with you anywhere you go, or trade with your friends to build your Star Wars collection as you see fit. You can find Topps' Star Wars Card Trader app on the App Store or Google Play now. Uh, and one last thing I want to say about this issue, though, that I thought was really funny in the dialogue was the fact that Afra calls the Wookiee Santee. Like, did that jump out to you? Like, man, that girl, she has got brass balls. Like, that Wookiee is not somebody you trifle with. Yeah, but it's kind of one of those things where it's just sort of, you know, she she's a little cracked in the head anyway. So not sure I would put anything past her, you know? I mean, <laughs> she's, already, she's already dealing with Vader. How much worse could it get? And the question of how much worse could it get brings us to Darth Vader number nine, or Shadows and Secrets part three. Uh, we pick up on Anthan 13, because of course, remember, that is where Thanoth realized that Vader had recently been, because it was in those caves where they had stashed that hoard of cash when we last saw it. So what does Vader do? He goes there. He allows himself to be noticed, or he puts the word out about the fact that he's going to be there. A small rebel cell who thinks they're going to get really lucky shows up, finds him, and he kills them. Why? To cover his butt and basically have proof that, yes, the reason he was on Anthan 13 recently, because really, you know, it just has to be something recent enough to cover up the fact that he was there and had the, the, the signature on his armor and everything... What's the fact that he just killed the rebels? It's fine. Their dead bodies will serve as the proof for Thanoth of why he was there. Certainly it wasn't anything about ill-gotten gains or anything. And that guy's so smart, though, that it's like Vader is kind of being stupid. And I think this is like something the Star Wars in general is is forgetting about. You've got characters like in Battlefront 2 where uh Sin has that like a photographic memory, in a sense. You've got all these people with really smart brains that allow them to track this kind of stuff and what do we have we don't have anyone in the jedi temple that tracks maps to notice that a planet's gone thrawn he doesn't notice that a planet's gone this guy doesn't notice that oh hey these bodies were only these only been dead for one day like like really vader come on think this one through these people are smart maybe he's just expecting that they're gonna be so busy with the other stuff that he's not gonna check it right because his his comment is when he's asked about why he was there the response he gives to it specifically is, uh, I pursued a rebel cell there. I dealt with them. 
I do not consider eliminating a few rebels a matter that requires comment. If you wish, you may go and see the remains yourself. So it's almost like he's saying, you know what? This isn't a big deal. Screw you if you want to question me. You want to see the bodies freaking go. Which is going to cause someone who doesn't want to lose face to be like, I don't need to see the bodies. I wasn't questioning you. Back off. Chill, man. You know? So maybe just saying that would convince Thanos not to go check it out because he was playing it off like, it's such an obvious thing. Go check. I invite you to check. So they're continuing their investigation. Thanos is at Anthan Prime, or at this sort of space station uh, orbital dockyard at Anthan Prime, and he explains what he thinks happened in the heist. He says that uh, his theory is that a small team manufactured a meteor storm with explosives and used it to cover the fact they disabled the ship with an ion charge, boarded, located the vault, and then manually fired an enhanced meteor to create a breach, ejecting everything into space, and then collected their proverbial ill-gotten gains. At which point, Vader must be peeing in his catheter, because that's exactly basically what happened. But you could be mistaken. I can't be sure, but it seems logical enough. I hope you are correct. My time is too precious to spend chasing phantoms. Again, he's probably like, oh, crap. But they've got, they think they've got a lead. Um, they think they're on the right track. And after a brief conversation that I already mentioned about Anthan 13 and why Vader was there in the first place, Vader meets Thanos uh, beneath, in the lower levels, that is, of Anthan Prime. Uh, they're looking for a guy who goes by the name of the Dragon. He's an arms dealer in the area. And the thought is that if whoever it was that robbed the ship used explosives, this is probably who they would have bought it from. And one of the dealers for the dragon, a guy named Duan, or Duan, uh, D-O-O-W-A-N, I'm assuming that his last name is Juan, so it's Duan Juan, yeah, a Duan Juan. Sorry. But that they're going to try to catch him and persuade him to roll over on the dragon. And this is a guy who has had some previous... uh connections, previous interactions with Thanos, it appears. Uh, there's a droid fighting din that they have that's basically, it exists for droid fighting because you can't have sentience fighting because that was outlawed, but the droids fighting hasn't been, so it's kind of a legal gray area. And the thought is they just go in quietly, they talk to the guy, they get the information, they get out. And of course, Vader has prepared with a crap ton of stormtroopers, so quietly is not going to happen. Except, no, wait. It's not Vader, right? As soon as he walks out, you see him say, we will act quietly, it's best if we don't, ah. And you see the stormtroopers, and you're immediately like, oh, so Vader's undermining him? No. They just run afoul of another of the Imperial investigations. Those troopers aren't there at Vader's behest, although it's going to play right into Vader's hands. They're there with the twins, because the twins are there for information as well as they're trying to track down uh, what happened with the Plasma Devils and where they're getting their weapons and so forth. And by the time they get inside, sure enough, the twins are basically just raising hell and wiping out pretty much anybody that's in their way. Even Thanos thinks that this is sloppy, sloppy work. Vader steps into the fray. They are able to find... Duan, uh, to be able to question him, but this is all going to have to happen while Morage and Aeolin are beating up on the other clientele. So it's kind of out in the open, but there's enough of a distraction that they can sort of have a private conversation. Private enough. And they're able to find out, after some questioning, that 
the dragon is in his mansion in the lower reach of Prime's eastern core, or eastward core, there on Anthan Prime. And then they confront the twins and present Duans, as you know, Duan knows people in the arms business, I dare say they supplied the plasma devils. He may be of use in your investigations. And rather than questioning him, more it just pulls his lightsaber and kills him. Why? Because he needs to make known their presence, right? He needs to cement a reputation for the twins of killing those who cross them, even if it screws over their investigation. Wow, these are some arrogant kids playing at being quasi-Sith or wannabe Sith. Man, and they got lucky, too, because Vader could have easily... I mean, look at the the dialogue here. A show of force. Or actually, we'll go back to uh, the inspector. And what precisely do you think you're doing? A show of force. We have no laurels to rest on, no reputation. Now the planet knows who we are and what we will do to anyone who opposes us. Where's Vader? I'll give you a show of force. Like, he should have force choked that little punk right then and there. But I get the aspect that this adjunct has got him kind of, like, in a vice. Like... That guy is so close. Like, I, I guess that's the only reason why Vader isn't just putting these kids in place. Cause like, come on, like Vader's choking out generals and stuff on the Death Star. All of a sudden we're supposed to believe that this Vader is a tuck tail guy. Like, I, I don't buy that. Well, in essence, they've just done part of the job for him, right? Because if you take out Duan and eventually you go and take out the dragon, you've taken out one of the links that could lead back to Vader in the heist. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. And Thanos does comment on how passive Vader is. You know, he says, you know, you're quiet. That's not a surprise. Uh, that aligns with your reputation. You're also passive, and this does not, he says. But that, of course, is after expressing his opinion on the twins, which is pretty spot on. And again, gives you a sense of the kind of man Thanoth is, where he says, I suppose they would stop the Plasma Devils if they killed every single living thing in this sector. <sighs> children. One should never send children to do an adult's job, Lord Vader. And we live in a universe brimming with children. Does this guy live in Washington, D.C. or something? And I didn't know about it. <laughs> but it's interesting because Vader is able to play off the fact that he isn't taking the lead. He's letting Thanoff kind of lead this investigation by the fact that Unai was basically a traitor to Vader. And this idea that, you know, I'm trying to figure out if you're dangerous like he was, to which Thanos says he is, but only to enemies of the Empire, which is a good answer for that type of, of character. We then jump still to Anthen Prime, but this time up into the space around it, where the Archangel, of course piloted by Aphra, is coming in for a landing with the droids aboard as well, because that is where you will find the information source known as the Anti. And they go and uh, speak to the Anti to get information for Vader as part of that special mission that he sent her on, on a guy by the name of Commodex Tan. And she gets the information, pays well for it, but even the auntie's like, are you sure this is the right dude? He was a military clerk in the Republic era before leaving the service and entering the family trade upon the death of his father. He's been retired now for nearly 20 years. Really? Like, this is the dude? And you get this sense of, where is this going? She pays the man, and on the way out, we get a sense of where this story is going and how it's going to provide us some more insight into some critical details of what characters know and don't know in this era of story group canon. As Triple Zero asks, I have to agree with BT, Mistress. This Commodex Tan doesn't sound like someone who could possibly be of interest to the Master. Probably not, she answers. I mean, just a boring career in the family business. They were morticians on Naboo. Bum, bum, bum. 
And issue three and our coverage for this episode ends. Yeah. And at this point, I mean, things are still building up. I, that Thanos guy, like, man, everything about him just, I don't know, like it raises my hackles. And at this point, we haven't got to the weirdness that we will talk about next episode. But when we get there, that's where the menace of this character seems to evaporate. At this moment, he is the threat. Like he is definitely the thing that I'm, I'm just going to like surprise Vader hasn't just full out, just killed him and found some way to write it off really. And it's funny because I think that to some degree, uh, it's not exactly in keeping with the attitude of the character, except perhaps in the prequel era, certainly not in this era, but you can almost see Vader in the way that he's been thought of in this era uh, for legends to a large degree, and to some degree in canon, as Vader at this point is, is sort of unstoppable. He doesn't need to worry about much. In essence, he is sort of the Cartman, the, uh, the I do what I want thing, right? Mm-hmm. But he can't anymore. For once, he's having to sort of circle back and cover his tracks. He thought he was so freaking clever, and turns out there is someone more clever than him. And that is something new in essence, for him. Although I guess I never really thought of Anakin as a particularly clever character. So seeing him scheming here is like, hey, Anakin, you've been studying. Uh, you had 19 years to bone up on your practice and everything. But, um, but yeah, it's... This issue, it's... And, okay, audience and Mark, you tell me, but we've gone through three issues now, and the plot has moved along, moving us to where we need to be. We've got three full issues of content... It took a while to summarize them. There is substance there, but doesn't it feel like with these three issues that we didn't just read through three issues because there's just not enough there? And yet it is. I don't know how to describe that, but that's the kind of story it feels like. It's so weird. Yeah, no, there definitely is. I mean, I keep coming back to like, what is the trope where you're asked to hunt yourself? Like, that seems to be something that's coming up a lot, but the fact that it's Vader doing that, it's... Like, I don't, there's gotta be an actual name for that trope, right? Like, it's not like, a, is that a MacGuffin also? <laughs> That's a MyGuffin. A MyGuffin. Yeah, I mean, so for me, like, I, I, I think the thing that really came away with this arc is the fact, like, like he said, you know, Vader went from being this badass can do whatever he wanted to he's in the doghouse and not just in Palpatine's doghouse, but this is open across the couch. Everybody knows he's in the doghouse. He's been basically publicly shamed and everybody knows that he is like, you know, one more screw up and you're out. I'm replacing like, and everybody knows this. And I think that, that like, even with tag, like general or grand general tag, like their relationship has changed. When you think about their interactions on the death star and now what we get when they interact, it's like, yeah, it's definitely a shift for Vader. And it was something that as I read this, it's interesting and off-putting at the same time. Because like, you know, Rogue One literally happened moments before we get here. Like we're talking what? Like maybe a month time frame? Like he is, oh, how the mighty have fallen, you know? And you mentioned the aspect about Vader being a schemer and stuff. And I was talking about Sith telling truth and lies and stuff. And that is something that Anakin as Vader doesn't do much. He's not one of those master manipulators. We don't see him doing that kind of stuff. That's not his forte. You know, he is a juggernaut. He comes in and knocks crap down and uses brute force and occasionally outsmarts people, but not that often. You know, he's usually the, the hammer. 
if you will. And, and so seeing the hammer in a position where he's got to find ways to use that finesse and finagle things and work around the, the main picture and, and be working in the shadows when you're basically working for the shadow master, like there's an, a malevolence there that isn't spoken. You know, I mean, Thanoth, he is the bad guy here, but he's working for Palpatine. Like everything about this, like I keep wondering, you know, did Palpatine pick this guy on purpose to kind of like really put a thorn in Vader's side? Because it's working. It definitely, that's the plot point at this point that, that has me the most worried for our characters. I'm still in that aspect of I'm enjoying the ride with Afra. I'm curious about what's going on with Vader, but beyond that, like I, the villains and stuff, like, I feel like they're just there. Like there's, mm-hmm. you know, aside from, aside from the Admiral Akbar Grievous guy, he's the only one out of all these characters that I just, I immediately didn't like him. I don't know what it is about him. I generally, I like Ma, Mon Calmari. I like, uh, Akbar, but something about this guy, he just looks like a jerk. And I hate to judge a picture or a book by its cover, but man, everything about this guy, they did it well. Like the, the dialogue he uses, the way he, looks at the universe the way that the other people in his group look at him like oh man you've been in a box all this time like like he's itching to prove himself but in the most dastardly of ways so like of the villains he's the only standout aside from thanoth himself and thanoth is just doing his job it's his smarts and the fact that he's on to vader that's so scary that's definitely it's almost like this story is similar to the way that they approach a lot of the novels at this point where it's more about the characterization of Vader and sort of moving certain bits of information along in terms of what he knows and what he can do about it. Because you think about it, you got your core cast who's kind of doing their core cast kind of stuff. Vader, Afra, Triple Zero, and BT-1. And then you've got Thanoff entered into the mix. But beyond them, everybody they're going up against, and even really the bounty hunters... To, I mean, if we didn't know Bosk from elsewhere, we wouldn't give a crap that Bosk was there. If we're not going to see Black Kersantan again, we wouldn't give a crap that Black Kersantan was there and involved. It's like everybody beyond those five key characters, Thanos, Vader, Afra, the droids, barely exist in this comic. They're just there to fill a one-dimensional quick role, and otherwise, who gives a crap? And I think that's my issue with... The twins with Void Gazer with Carbon or, or you know, Mancala Grievous, as you were calling him, because I just don't feel anything for them except just, God, that was just a dumb play to make these the main villains of the piece. I think that's it's something that now is coloring my entire reread. So I can appreciate a lot of stuff about the rereading now because we know what the big picture is so we can see the pieces be put into position. But at the same time, it's an incredible downer that, in essence, the main villain of the Darth Vader series, Silo, and all these little helper wannabe replacement characters that are sort of the main threat or the main obstacles to Vader, just aren't fleshed out hardly at all and never really become all that interesting. A story needs to not just have an interesting protagonist, or in this case, kind of like an anti-hero, because we're rooting for Vader. It needs to have an adversary that is worthwhile. And in essence, thankfully, that's what Thanoth proves here. Though I think he's more of a foil than a rival. And his main rivals and the antagonists in the story, you don't really care about. It's going to be the same thing in the Shoturin War arc. 
you're going to have a crossover, the first big crossover in Star Wars comics from Marvel, where you're going to have Star Wars and Darth Vader crossing over for Vader down, building off of the stuff that's happened in a couple of different arcs of both of those series, and it's still going to be one of the most dull possible crossovers you could ever freaking imagine for Star Wars. They're just... There's something about the writing at this point in the Star Wars line that it was like they started with a bang, then everything became a whimper for a while. Because remember, this is also the era when we're getting crap like the Princess Leia miniseries, the Chewbacca miniseries that should never have existed, and so forth. And it takes them a while to really kind of get back up to speed again. And then the Star Wars series gets somewhat better. The New Vader series is quite a bit better. The Aphra series is quite good. The Poe Dameron series is quite good. But it's like... They put all their energy into launching the first arcs of these series and getting all the clickbait out there and getting all the attention and getting all the sales numbers for their 100-plus variants of issue number one kind of stuff. And then they didn't know where exactly they were going to go for the next arc. Or if this was their big plan all along, they really misjudged how interesting they were going to be able to make it, and then they were just kind of locked into it. It just... It's... I don't know. I don't know. I felt like this series had so much potential, and in retrospect and in reading it, there are cool, nifty little things that are noticed that make for some interesting characters, but you start zooming out to the big picture of full arcs or full series, and it's really disappointing. And, again, it doesn't feel like they're bad issues, it doesn't feel like they're bad comics, and yet the disappointment is palpable. <laughs> That about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any star wars or eu or legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now lastly before we go we want to once again thank our sponsors tops for coming along and contributing to all this awesomeness and of course our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash stars you get a free trial run of audible to see what they're all about audible has more than 100,000 titles you can explore the star wars expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because audible members they can exchange any book within 12 months that's one year with no questions asked so in this digital age if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook audible just might be right for you so once again for stars beyond the films this has been mark and whistler and nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you and don't quote us the odds that it gets a little dicey when those uh, bounty hunters take all those credits that look like little chips of crystal or something and try to go to like a strip club or something with it and all of a sudden the twi'lek girls are walking around jingling (laughs) 